seated. We have been singing to, uh, to God and to one another, just proclaiming our, our trust and our faith in his promises and his faithfulness. Let's now go to that faithful God, uh, just bring our requests uh, to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning as the Sovereign One, the God who is faithful forever. And God, we know this morning uh, in this congregation there are many experiencing um, the fire and the flood, the trial, the disappointment, the loss. And so we pray that you uh, would be near to them today. Uh, help those who are who are suffering, who are grieving, help them to know that you love them, that you see them. God, we know uh, that we serve and we worship a Savior who, who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And so God, we, we pray that you would be working in the lives uh, of every person in this church, God, causing all things to work together for good and to work for, uh, for the the blessing and the joy of your people and for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, your word instructs us to pray for, for rulers and for those who are in positions of authority. And so this morning we want to pray for President Biden, for Governor Nome, for Mayor Allender. God, uh, for, for these leaders and for others, God, we pray you would guide them and help them as, as they lead uh, in uh, the places you, uh, you have them, as they make decisions, uh, God, may they be reminded that ultimately it's you who have put them in these roles and that their, uh, their purpose, uh, their, the role that they play is to, to, serve, to serve the people that they represent and to promote um, peace and righteousness and justice. God, we, pr- we pray in particular for our president and for other uh, military leaders and officials, for ambassadors and diplomats as they respond to uh, just major events and things that are unfolding in Eastern Europe, uh, to, to the invasion of Ukraine. God, give, give these leaders wisdom in how to, to exert pressure, uh, to, to seek to, to punish wrongdoing and to discourage uh, aggression and conflict, and yet at the same time, wisdom on how not to escalate the conflict, but to, to swiftly bring it to an end. And God, we do pray especially for our brothers and sisters uh, who are in Ukraine right now, those who are, are facing a severe trial. God, we just pray that you would, you would be with them strengthen them. God, be with those who are having to flee their country as refugees, and be with those who have had to take up arms to defend their homeland. God, we pray you would keep, keep them in your tender care and protection, and most of all, keep them trusting in you. God, may they never lose sight of you, even as, as so many show um, courage and resilience and, and patriotism for the sake of defending their country. 
God, may they also, and even more so, may they represent the kingdom of God in whatever situation they face. And Lord, we pray for an end uh, to this conflict. We pray for a ceasefire. We pray uh, that, that wisdom would prevail and justice would prevail. God, we pray that you would scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and that you would strengthen and protect your people, not only in Ukraine, uh, but throughout all the world, in Russia and, and to the ends of the earth, God. And now we pray for us, uh, we pray for South Ganyan Baptist Church, and as we turn now to the preaching of your word, I pray you would help me to, uh, to speak the truth and to preach the gospel with boldness, that you would give me wisdom, you would guide me, and help all of us here to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as your word goes forth in power. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, throughout history, uh, in all kinds of various uh, time periods and various cultures, you know, human beings seem to have a real obsession with uh, the concept of, of wishes, right? Wishes that are granted. You know, in our fairy tales, there's, there's a hero or a heroine who's granted a wish, or maybe it, it might be three. So whether that's Aladdin uh, in the, the most famous story, his genie of the lamp, perhaps there's a wishing well, and we even have all these superstitions, not just in our fairy tales, but uh, in, our, in our day-to-day lives about making wishes, wishing upon a star, uh, breaking the wishbone, blowing out the candles on your birthday cake. But what if you were actually granted one wish? You can fill in the blanks whether it's magical or whether it's just someone really powerful with vast wealth and influence makes that offer to you. What would you wish for? You know, presumably, you would choose whatever it is that your heart most desires. To use a popular modern phrase, right, you would follow your heart. And if that were to happen, and all the rest of us got to see what you chose I think we would learn a lot about who you are, your choice as you pursue the desire of your heart would reveal your character and and who you are as a person. So this morning, uh, in the book of Esther, we're going to be focusing on two very different characters and considering the choices that they make and, and in what direction that their heart ultimately guides them. And so if you want to turn your Bibles, in a, in, a, in a moment here, we're going to read uh, Esther chapter 5. It's on page 413 of those blue pew Bibles. Uh, but, but just to recap a little bit of where we've been, uh, in case you missed any of, any of these weeks, um, as we've been preaching through the book of Esther, in the very opening of the book, in the opening scene, the king of Persia, uh, Xerxes, he got rid of his queen for refusing to appear when, when she was summoned during a great feast. And so a young Jewish woman named Esther was chosen as the new queen. 
But Esther had been instructed by her cousin Mordecai not to reveal her Jewish heritage. However, after Mordecai ended up angering um, the second in command in the kingdom, Haman, and refused to bow down to him, this, this character, Haman, hatched an evil plot to annihilate all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. And so upon hearing of, of Haman's evil plot, Mordecai urged Esther, who is now the queen, to, to plead for the king's favor and to rescue her people. And Esther hesitated because going to the king without an invitation meant execution, death, unless the king extended the golden scepter. And Mordecai challenged her And he said, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Esther called for all the Jews to to fast for three days. And after that, she would approach the king. And she spoke these, these famous words, and if I perish, I perish. And so that's where we pick up now in chapter five of the book of Esther. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther?' What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king." Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So there are a lot of developments in this chapter. For some characters, things go well. Things are are looking up. Uh, For others, things couldn't be more dire. You know, there's another character 
in the book of Esther. There's another cha- character in chapter 5 behind the scenes, one who is, is moving things toward their ultimate end. And so even though he isn't mentioned, God is guiding the story. And, and even if, if you struggle to see that uh, today, I hope you stay, stick around to the end uh, of the book and, and it will be I think evidently clear that God is at work, God is guiding the story. And so all the various decisions, all the seeming coincidences, all those things in the end will bring about his purposes, his plan. And so what I hope we'll see today and what I believe this passage teaches us is this. Whether you face triumph or disaster, be a wise person who trusts God, not a fool acting in selfish pride with no thought for God. I know that's, that's kind of a mouthful. I'll, I'll say it one more time. Whether you face triumph or disaster, be a wise person who trusts God, not a fool acting in selfish pride with no thought for God. So, First, we're going we're gonna to break this up into kind of two, two sections. And, and the first one is verses 1 through 8. Esther is granted a wish. Uh, and then the, the concluding verses, uh, it's uh, Haman follows his heart, verses 9 through 14. But first, Esther is granted a wish. Uh, read again just uh, verses 1 through 3 with me. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom." So here, at the, at the opening of the chapter, Esther makes a bold stand. You know, in, in the previous chapter, uh, as, as Tanner um, preached to us a, couple, a few weeks ago, Esther chose to stop hiding her Jewish identity and to act on behalf of God's covenant people. She said, if I perish, I perish. And so now, as she comes and makes this, this stand, this bold stand, she meets with Success As she stands at the far end of the king's court, Xerxes sees her and she wins favor in his sight. He tells her, I'll, I'll grant your request anything, even to half of my kingdom. And this success ultimately came from God's hand. In God's providence, he had, as, as, as Mordecai had, had hinted at, he had prepared Esther for such a time as this. Your Proverbs 29:26 says, "Many desire a ruler's favor, but a person receives justice from the Lord." It's interesting in light of, of all the references to favor uh, in this book. But even though people may come and be seeking the king's favor, seeking uh, in Esther's case deliverance for her people, ultimately justice, salvation, ultimately the decision comes from the Lord's hand. And so, Christian, if you're here this morning and listening to this story, following along as we've gone through this series, we should be encouraged by the story of Esther to likewise to stand courageously 
for righteousness, for, for love, for justice, and ultimately for God's glory. Because no matter what the outcome might be, God is worthy of our trust through, through it all. And, and of course, as Christians, we should expect that there will be spiritual opposition against the work of Christ in the world and against the people of Christ. And so that taking a stand is often going to come with a cost. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When we identify with Christ and with his people, when we stand for righteousness, we may pay a price. And just like Esther didn't know at this point how her story was going to end, we, we don't always know what the outcome is going to be in the short term. But how can that be? How, how can it be that no matter how dark things might get, that we can still say God is trustworthy Like we just sang, your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. Well, consider this with me. Right? Esther decided to take a stand uh, back in chapter 4, knowing all the danger, all the risk involved. And she and her young women and all the Jews in, uh, in Susa, they were fasting for three days and nights. And it was on the third day that Esther came into the king's throne room and won favor. After these three days of, of distress and humiliation and sorrow, the breakthrough came on that third day. And in fact, the, the Jewish people, as they uh, looked at their history and studied the, the Hebrew scriptures, they noticed that this pattern of deliverance arriving on the third day happens time and time again in Hebrew scripture. Perhaps one of the most famous examples, right, is Jonah. He sat in the belly of the fish for for three days and nights and then was deposited back onto dry land. And then the prophet Hosea, in Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2, he wrote, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And so the Jewish tradition, which was based on Hosea, uh, was that the dead will finally come to life only after three days from the start of final judgment. And then, of course, you know, 500 years later, when the promised Messiah arrived, when he was walking the earth, he spoke about the sign of Jonah. So Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Over and over throughout the Gospels' accounts, Jesus told his disciples that he would be rejected, killed, and on the third day would be raised. And so all those hints and shadows that came before, including Esther, having that golden scepter extended to her 
on the third day. All those things pointed towards the great, the greatest deliverer, the one who would rescue people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Because you see, when Jesus came as our great deliverer, our rescuer, he didn't choose just to experience three days of distress or fasting. No, he didn't merely face the threat of death from an enemy. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he came to challenge the enemy head on, the, the great enemies of humanity, sin and death and Satan. And in order to win that victory, Jesus had to experience on the cross the judgment and the wrath that all mankind deserved for their sin and their rebellion against a good and holy God. Jesus died on that cross and was laid in a tomb. But on the third day, he rose again. And this is the critical event in all human history. Because think about this. Just like for Esther, if the golden scepter had not been extended to her on that third day, if the king had not granted life to her, but instead death, it would have spelled disaster for the Jewish people. But how much more so if Christ had not been raised to life three days after taking God's judgment on himself, if he had not been proved victorious by the resurrection, if if the risen Christ hadn't demonstrated that that God was pleased with his all-sufficient atoning sacrifice, and so that now salvation was guaranteed for all who had put their faith in him, if he had not been raised on that third day, All humanity throughout all time would be lost and without hope. As one commentator writes, Had God not extended the cross of Jesus Christ to the world, all would die in his presence. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has guaranteed safety for all his people to enter the presence of a holy God. And all that's required is to reach out in faith, to touch that cross-shaped scepter, if you will, to embrace by faith Jesus Christ, the Savior who God has offered to us in his love and his mercy and his grace. And so we know God is trustworthy. We know the breakthrough will come. We know salvation is sure because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and, and you have never accepted Christ as that Savior, you've never embraced that gospel, I pray that you would do it even, even now this morning, even as you're, you're sitting in, uh, in your seat, and that you would come and, and talk to me, talk to one of the pastors or elders here, or maybe the person who brought you here. We would love to just rejoice with you and, and help you in continuing uh, to learn what it means Uh, to trust in Christ and to follow after him. But moving on through our our passage here, as Esther's story unfolds, uh, just look at verse 4 with me. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. You know, Esther carries out uh, this plan with, with skill and with confidence. Now that, now that she's identified with God's people, stepped into her, uh, 
to her true identity, she takes on a royal stature and, and greatness, and, and she wields her position with, with wisdom and strength. You know, starting in chapter 5, Esther is, is referred to again and again as Queen Esther. Now, undoubtedly, Esther had, had come into the king's court with a plan. She invites uh, Xerxes and Haman to a feast that she's already prepared. So, I mean, how can they refuse, right? And this feast is for the king. So it's, it's, it's in his honor. You know, back in, in the first chapter, Xerxes had held this grand banquet in his own honor. But how much better to be honored by someone else. And so the king is, is all on board with this. He orders Haman to be quickly fetched so they can do as Esther has asked. And, and the, the actual the, the words there in Hebrew are they can do according to the word of Esther. You know, in previous chapters with the king's decrees, it's been referred to as the word of the king. Here, it's get Haman so we can do uh, the word of Esther. And so Haman is coming under the authority of Esther's request. And so then we're primed for this climactic moment when surely Esther is going to reveal that she's a Jew and that Haman is seeking to destroy her people. And what happens? Well, the king is well aware there must have been a reason she was willing to appear uninvited into his throne room. And so in verse 6, he asks, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And this, this type of a, a, a grand, uh, kind of exaggerated offer seems to be common for kings. You know, Herod in, in Mark 6.23 famously does the same thing with, with the daughter of Herodias. But instead of answering the king with this big climactic speech, uh, what happens is very anticlimactic. And so the big reveal is delayed for another day, and in our case, for another week. But, you know, we can't know for sure, but I don't believe that Esther lost her nerve at this point. I think this was her plan all along. Uh, Proverbs twenty-five fifteen says, "...with patience a ruler may be persuaded." And a soft tongue will break a bone. Esther really prolongs the suspense and the intrigue, and, and I think she strengthens her position. You know, commentators point out that in, in the Hebrew text, in verse 7, there is no word is, uh, where, where it says, where it says, Then Esther answered, My wish and my request there is no word is in the, in the original language. And so it's as if, it literally reads, Esther answered and said, my wish and my request. And it's, it's like she just stops mid-sentence, making the king more curious than ever. And then she, she goes on, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You know, Esther is, is using the king's own words. She's saying, if you really do, as you've said, you want to grant my wish, you want to fulfill my request, then come tomorrow and then I'll submit to your, uh, to your words. I'll do as you've commanded. I'll tell you my request. And so now the king has, has already committed himself beforehand to grant her wish. 
And, and part of her compliance to his order, her submission, is, is to set up this second feast where she's going to do as he is asked, and she's going to share her requests. So Esther is, is in control of this situation, heightening the suspense, making the king eager to grant her request, kind of unfolding the plan on her own timeline. Uh, because, of course, Haman's decree is, is not supposed to go into effect for months, so she knows she doesn't have to, to rush she can be patient, or so she thinks, but she's moving things along uh, her own timeline. She, she's kind of the one moving the pieces on the chessboard. Um, it reminds me of a line from the musical Hamilton that says, Well, I arranged the meeting, I arranged the menu, the venue, the seating. Could have been talking about Esther. But we should notice that even as Esther wins favor, and this plan meets with success, she remains single-minded in focus. She doesn't falter. She doesn't consider whether she might just continue to hide her Jewishness and pursue something for herself. Right? She's been offered to up to half of the king's kingdom. She, she doesn't consider whether she might just focus on her own safety and protection. No, her sole aim is to rescue her people not merely to save or to benefit herself. So Esther has uh, quite literally been granted a wish by the most powerful man in the world, and there's, there's no question how she is going to use it. And so she acts with wisdom, with patience, with restraint. And I believe even though uh, God doesn't appear in this book, we, we don't ever hear him speak, no angel appears, no prophet shows up, but as Esther has, has thrown her lot in with her own people, with the covenant people of Yahweh, I believe she's trusting in God. And if, if they're to have any chance of surviving, if, if her leadership and bravery is to result in success, God will have to be faithful to his covenant promises, to his covenant people. So we move into the next section um, point two in your outline there, Haman. Haman follows his heart, verses 9 through 14. And here we're going to have a stark contrast to Esther in, in, the, in the first opening verses. Haman is a completely different kind of character. So we read in verse 9, right after the feast ends, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So we notice right away how quickly Haman swings from an extreme high to an extreme low. He's, he comes out joyful. Maybe he's a little buzzed from the wine course. But he is on top of the world. Nothing can bring him down except for Mordecai, who still won't show him proper deference and respect. Haman is an unstable man. He's initially so puffed up and pleased with the honor and the attention from the king and Esther, he, he quickly becomes just giddy with happiness. But then as soon as Mordecai hurts his pride, he plunges from happiness into despair. And all of this is based on his perception of how other people view him. All of it's dependent on the praise of man and concern with what other people think. 
But what really is going to make all the difference for, for the choices that Haman makes from here on out is, is, number one, the counsel that he listens to, and number two, the inclination of his own heart. So let's read from, from verse 10 through the end of the chapter. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman listens to the counsel of his friends and his wife, and their advice is essentially, if you hate this guy so much, just kill him, right? The king, the king will do whatever you tell him. You, know, you, can't, you can't lose. And this idea really pleases Haman. You know, it plays to his pride. You, you've already gotten the king to sign off on this decree to, to wipe out all the Jews. I'm sure you can just tell him, we need to kill this guy. So it plays to his, his pride, his sense of power and position. And it also gives him the immediate gratification of just having Mordecai gone from his life. But the ultimate responsibility, regardless of, of whatever counsel, the wicked counsel he receives, the ultimate responsibility lies with Haman. And what motivates him to pursue uh, this path, this groundless brutality against Mordecai, it's his, his own heart, his character. Haman is going to follow his heart. And as much as we often hear that promoted as a, as a noble thing to do, it can lead to very bad outcomes. You know, Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Haman's heart is, is filled with pride. You know, in verse 11 there, he, he recounts for his friends a whole bunch of things they already know just in order to boast. And, and this list really reveals what matters most to Haman. It's his riches, it's the number of his sons, which, which that brings wealth and, and status to the family, uh, the promotions and the advancements the king's given him, the recognition from Queen Esther, inviting him not to one, but two feasts. Now, again, you'll have to stay tuned for the next couple of weeks to see how things go for this man who cares for nothing except honor and riches and, and a prominent family. Does Haman get to hold on to these things and, and see them increase even more, or does he lose them? But even right now, as we look at Haman and, and just as his character is revealed, it's really a reminder to us that there's a path of pursuing wealth and honor, pursuing the selfish desires of our heart without any check or balance, a path that's, that's not marked by love or compassion, but only boastful pride. 
And that is an ever-present danger for all of us. You know, God's Word commonly describes those who, who go down this path um, as, as the rich or the foolish or the wicked. And Haman exemplifies these characteristics. So, for instance, in James chapter 4, uh, he describes the rich and boastful who presume that today or tomorrow we will go into such and such, and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But James says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And in the very next chapter, James warns the rich uh, with these words that, that seem as if they could have been written to Haman. He writes, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And then the Proverbs uh, throughout, they warn against foolish and wicked behavior. Uh, so Proverbs twelve sixteen says, The vexation of a fool is known at once. Proverbs fourteen seventeen says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly. And Proverbs 21, 10 says, The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you wouldn't consider yourself or call yourself a Christian, I just want to make it absolutely clear, those of us who follow Jesus should be the last people on earth to ever look down on others. We recognize our hearts as having the same capacity for going down those paths of pride and anger and living for self. In fact, as Christians, we understand, just like we sang earlier, that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. We know that, as, as God's Word clearly teaches, there is none righteous, not one, as it says in Romans 3.10. So a Christian doesn't claim to be superior. We're on the same playing field. We have all the same problems. But what we do have in the gospel is the remedy for that pride, that foolishness, that wickedness. The Proverbs calls it the fear of the Lord. It means humbly bowing the knee to God, repenting, turning away from our pride and self-centeredness, and then through the grace that's offered through Jesus Christ, receiving the blessings of the new covenant, uh, this, this amazing thing that God promised long ago, a relationship with him in, in which he would write his law on the hearts of his people and enable them to obey it. And what is this law? Jesus summarized it like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So a, a Christian is a person who realizes that left to their own devices, they have the potential to, to go down the path of Haman, the path that leads to destruction. And in Jesus Christ, they find a new way, a way that's marked by humility and sacrifice and love and, and forgiveness for all of the wrongs they've done. And so 
we end chapter 5 with perhaps the greatest amount of tension in the entire book. You know, things are going well for Esther as she stands with God's people. It seems that he is providentially giving her favor with the king. He's blessing her plans. But the real test still hasn't come. How is the king going to respond when she reveals her true identity and accuses Haman, you know, the king's kind of favorite lieutenant there? Now, Haman, on the other hand, is also feeling really good at the end of chapter 5. He's looking forward to another feast, but first he he intends to kill his most hated enemy. So this this proud, selfish man feels like everything is going his way. But again, James would remind him he ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. Now, Mordecai uh, is in the most perilous position of anyone. His life is hanging by a thread, and it seems that neither he or Esther realizes how urgent the situation has become. So, friends, all of us are going to face triumphs and successes some days, and we're also going to face disappointments and maybe even disaster. And most of the time, we can't change those things that life throws our way. But the ultimate question is not about what happens. The ultimate question is about who you are. Are you a person boasting in your success and then despairing over your disappointment? Are you a foolish person pursuing your selfish desires and never acknowledging God? Or are you one who boasts in the Lord your God, who reigns over all, and one who humbly seeks to to follow him, to serve him, to promote what's good and loving and right? You see, these, these two paths are mutually exclusive. You can't have the one and the other. But what I hope you see is the deciding factor is how you relate to God. And everything else flows out from there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, just this opportunity to think uh, about uh, not only this, uh, this fascinating story and all the, the excitement and the narrative, but also to think about our own lives and about the paths the paths that we are on, the paths that we have been on. God, we pray for each one here that we would find ourselves and we would continue down the path of humbly following after you, our God and our Savior, laying down our own self-will and seeking to, to humble ourselves to bow the knee to Christ, who is not only sovereign king and ruler, uh, but he is tender, caring shepherd and savior. And he longs to to love and and care and welcome us into his arms. Uh, His burden is easy. His yoke is easy. God, may each one of us uh, follow after Christ, uh, knowing that there will be trials and, and pain and suffering at times, 
uh, but that it's all worth it because he has conquered. He has risen from the dead. He will make all things right. That is our, our hope. That is our confidence. We just thank you for the hope that we have in him. We pray that you would help us and strengthen us uh, in this coming week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.